Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just trying to make sure it was on my, my AirPods, but yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Hanging in. How would how you feel about the end of the playoff run? Well, the end of the playoff run, I feel not so good, but um, the season, I feel great. I feel awesome about the season. Yeah, yeah. The, uh... I actually felt really good about the series, too, except for the last game. I think the last game was rough. Like, I, I was just, and it's easy to second guess whenever you lose, obviously, yeah. you know, but I was just like, why not more Davion? Like, sure, why not sure. more Chemezi? Like, why not? <laughs> you know, yeah, so. Chemezi. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I was hoping Kev would show up too before we start. Sure, no but problem. We can, I can wait. Give him a couple minutes. Wait, I don't mind waiting. Yeah. I don't talk to people about like you know, Kings basketball anymore regularly either. So um, it's kind of cool just to talk about that in some ways. Although I don't know that there's much to say except for a great season. And it's fun to go to the playoffs. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I forgot how fun it is. <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew it was going to be fun, but I, they, they took them, you know, we weren't the mark. Kings were not the mark. They took them to seven games. And... Right. Had him on the had him on the ropes, really. Well, not not, not on the ropes, but they, they uh, it was an even game in the seventh seventh game, you know. So to, 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 up to yeah. half up to halftime, up to halftime, and then then second half was just pretty bad, but for the Kings. But, yeah, yeah. Well, the rebounding I think was really. The Kings are so weird with that; like they seem to prog progress and regress a lot with rebounding, like. Like, it seems like every other game, they are, like, talking about it and emphasizing it, and then they do better for a game, and then they do worse again. So, I don't know what the ultimate fix is or anything, but... Yeah, neither do I. Oh, hey, Kevin. Hello. someone. Oh, hey, Kevin. How how are you feeling about the Kings, Kev? Sad. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really go further than that. A little dis- I, I I was upset about the last game. I thought we could have won, but yeah, same. Yeah, it it is what it is. I'm I'm happy about the team going in the full in the future. Um, I I think a lot of people may be overreacting about us needing help at the four. I think I'd rather mm. have a better wing. Like a like a better three, but there's not a yeah. lot of threes available right now. So it is what it is. I'm sure Monty will figure something out. Yeah, I agree. I feel really optimistic, but then it's funny, like reading a book like this, where it's like, wow, so much, so many things can go wrong. <laughs> yeah, know? like I mean, so, uh, but yeah, I feel. I watched some of like the the exit interviews today and and those were pretty good it seems like all the guys pretty much want to come back if they can and i don't mm-hmm. know that's good vibes you know yeah the the exit interview that reassured me the most was kevin herders realizing that he needs to work on conditioning um if we get yeah. a if we get a in-fit kevin herder who can you know keep up with with defending guys like him and being able to hit his shots because he's not gassed the whole time. That'll, that'll help a lot. 
Yeah, I, I think we need a three. I think we need a real three or like a year of development for Kessler, you know, so he is a real three. Um, yeah. I mean, I that would be another option, but but yeah. Getting a three is always the hardest, though. Um, well, you I know. Mean, yeah, I feel like every team needs a real three, right? Yeah, There's only yeah. like four great threes in the entire league, so. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get going. Um, I tried to like, I screwed up my thread a little bit because I got confused on my pictures and then I like um, have duplicates of some of them. But I tried to like put less in here because we went for two hours last time and I don't, I don't really know if we want to do that again. Um, but anyways, I'll just start at page 233 where we left off and you guys just break in whenever wherever you want to with anything we don't have to go in order I don't think my thread is totally in order either um, but I thought one of the most interesting things in the whole book was the stuff about the television contract and um, how he talks about like how there was like the three like every every um, network had like the three main advertisers that would like buy in on their sports packages. And so there was like a car and a beer and like a life insurance company, you know? And, um, and it was the only time that they thought that they were actually like selling products to men who would like make decisions about the family purchases. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. And I kept track of the, commercials that I saw on the um, ABC game and there were a lot of beer, beer commercials I gotta say um, I didn't write them down or anything like that but I just tried to remember you know there was like truck commercials beer commercials now there's more like fan gambling commercials too but I think like a lot of the television stuff still holds true um, and then when he was talking about like the Rune Arledge guy who kind of like did the really successful marketing for ABC and how he built it up by like making like new rivalries and by, you know, using replay. And um, I think that still, again, is like how they present it, you know, in a compelling way um, as like a live sports package is, Later on, way later on, when they're when Kermit they're telling the rest of the Kermit Washington story, Kermit says like he realized that there was like three you know extremely exciting things, and one of them was like um, dunking, and one of them was blocks, and there was a third one which I can't remember right now, but um, like being able to capture those super exciting moments and replay them, I think is so compelling. And um, yeah, I just found this really incredibly interesting. I haven't read anything like this anywhere else. And I, I think it's. The, uh, the ABA book went into it a little bit talking about the showmanship about sports um, and that this, the TV stuff is an extension of that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously the sport itself, the league needs to be presentable and, co and competitive with other kinds of entertainment. 
and then TV needs to broadcast that as entertainment, you know, to compete with others. So much about sports, the reason people watch sports is not just because of the sport itself, but the stories that come around it. And, yeah. and that's so much into how how these are presented, like Boston and 76ers and Lakers and Warriors. Yeah. And- yeah. Like, so, okay. So he says this. Of the best things the league had going for it, genuine rivalries in which the players themselves participated. Those rivalries, mm. Boston, Philly, New York, Baltimore, needed no ballyhoo. The athletes themselves were self-evidently proud, and they liked nothing better to, than to beat their opponents, particularly on national television. So mm. I think that that, you know, that the, I think that's legitimate, and I think that nowadays they take advantage of that and try and pitch almost everything that way which like leads to like the weird stuff like with the Steph Curry promotion on TNT where they made it look like Steph Curry was like playing himself or something because they didn't know how to market the Kings (laughs) properly yeah I mean hopefully they put De'Aaron in that commercial next time right but they really couldn't figure out like what the draw was or whatever. It, it's so crazy though, because there's a natural rivalry here, right? It, it's, it's NorCal local rivalry and, and they could have played that up. I think a lot of social media played that up and, and obviously there's a few other elements of this matchup. Like theme team was used quite a bit too, but. Oh, that's true. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's such a fantastic marketing scheme the whole beam team thing i think is yeah so catchy and so simple yeah um, it, it's it's infectious it's, it's yeah delightful. yeah um sure. one thing one thing about the broadcast stuff um it it didn't feel very relevant for a long time because you know lay we nba is very good so they just keep on renewing with espn and all the other people uh, on all the the major you know but but it, but TV has come up a f- decent amount the past few years because there are the whole China thing. Yeah. So so the the TV the the rights in China uh, came up, and then now with the death of the RSN, um, the, like so certain the Bowie Sports, which I think like eight teams have, went bankrupt. Yeah. So. So that's going to change the dynamic in a, in a few teams and everyone's going streaming. So, so maybe league pass will get a lot better. Who knows? But the, the death of the RSN is going to be very interesting in regards to how the league and the teams handle um, broadcasting and TV going forward. Yeah, I think so too. And um, I mean, for me, this really brought home the whole, like, I mean, we know that, the players get 51% of the profit sharing, right? And the profit sharing is mostly these television, this television contract. I mean, yeah, Mm. the teams pull in local money too. He doesn't really talk about radio money in here, which I doubt is even really like worth mentioning at this point. But back then it probably was, you know, um, Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I just thought it was it was fascinating because I think they still work under these same kind of rules, right? Is you use the biggest markets to sell the biggest products and then you bring in yeah. the most money 
And nobody really argues with that because it's shared throughout the league and the players benefit, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that... um, Reading through this book made me realize how much of, like, there's, like, two kinds of the NBA. There's the NBA that the whole league goes through, and then there's the national TV NBA. So, so you know how everyone talks about the Lakers, Warriors, and all the teams that keep on coming up on national TV. But then when teams like us and the Timberwolves come up that don't get a lot of looks, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like they, they have, no one's watched it because it's a totally different NBA. Yeah, it's true. Um, I do. So, and I think, okay, so he has this one. So what Arledge understood about the medium was its immediacy, that sports did not necessarily need a history or roots, that he could, if necessary, and if the sport translated itself into pictures, create a constituency for it. Nor did he mind if an event seemed boring, focusing attention on the broadcast booth and making the action there as important as the action on the field. So I thought that was just really interesting of like, this kind of idea that the television medium, I mean, you go to this game at the arena, right? And you have all the in-game op stuff. And I don't know if you guys went to that happy hour with um, Scott Moak that James Hamm did. Like that was super fascinating. And I don't know if I had thought about it as much when I'm like at the game of how much, how many people are like behind the scenes and like making all that stuff happen but it's funny and it's fun and it's part of the experience. And I like that he's saying here that the television experience is something totally different, right? And that the ops are like the broadcasters and the broadcasters themselves. And I think he talks about Howard Cosell and stuff at some point too, um, become their own level of stars, right? And a part of the entertainment is what they're adding to it. Um, So anyways, I thought that was really observant and interesting. And interesting that he includes it here as a part of Rune Arledge's strategy is to add this extra layer, layer of celebrity on top of the event, you know. Um. Anyways, I I don't know. I don't I think I took us away from the point that you were making, Kevin, there, but I just no, found that part the, the whole point. I mean the whole the, the whole the, the greatness of a long form discussion is that you can go on tangent, so so no apologies needed. <laughs> um anything else on the T V stuff? You guys have any? I, I was surprised about, at, at least in regards to the topic they were talking about with TV, how much one person's strategy can change the impact. So when they switched over yeah. um, to the, the different contrasts, then they didn't have as much of a strategy. Um, it, like it made a difference in ratings and that was surprising to me, but, but we've had a pretty similar strategy for a very long time. So it isn't super relevant to us today. Well, and I thought it was interesting that they presented, like, how the owners sort of, like, um, who was it? The Lakers owner was, like, so against going back with ABC and 
So against going back with Arlich, who was doing this fantastic job at like building the ratings and making it so much more compelling. <clears throat> and then CBS just didn't care about it barely at all. But then there were between a rock and a hard place, right? Like you have to have the income at that point. Like, so you, you know, you can't do anything to, to upset them. But meanwhile, like college ball is completely out performing you. Um, and you're nowhere near like baseball or football ratings. I, I, it'd be interesting to know what uh, the NBA ratings are these days. Cause I'm sure they outperform those things. Don't they? I don't know. Maybe they don't. Um, but he also talks about how it lent itself to this like inflation of the contract money, which, you know, he talks about in the aggregate as like some guys thinking it's not a great thing that these players are making so much money Um you know, that it's ruining basketball or, like, teams like the Celtics who, like, stayed really true to this, like, old-school kind of salary tree where the oldest vet gets paid the most instead of, like, the best player type thing until Bird comes along. Um, and then he does touch on the ABA contracts, like, also having an impact on inflating the NBA contracts, you know, just through the, the sheer uh, force of competition. That's a good thing, I think. But this is an older time period. Of course, it was, whatever, 43 years ago, right? So Yeah. And, and before, yeah. and before, because it covers a lot of ground. But um, I think someone's going to make the money, but might as well be the players, make half of it. Or yeah. And I don't think, like, I, well, he does – he does a really good job of like presenting the history of the players union and the, the first CBA. Uh, but I don't think he covers like when the players started receiving a specific percentage, you know, as per the CBA. Um, so that's it. That part, I, I don't know, but it, it is interesting because I know at different times according to the cba it's been different like it was 53 percent at one time it's 51 percent right now i don't know what the new one is you know so it changes according to each agreement um and then okay so tv stuff contract bigger contracts um and then he touches a little bit again on Marvin Barnes, bad news or news Barnes. And I kind of cut out a lot of what he said, but he just, the, the one that stuck out to me, I mean, he talks about him like interspersed throughout the end of this book a lot. Um, but he makes it sound like the guy was pretty much strung out, didn't sleep, um, ate like shit, <laughs> like, just did whatever he wanted and then he could just go out and like drop 50 points like you know like um but he was definitely at the very end of his career and i think he ended up by the end of the book going to to italy or something and 
being almost at the end of that as well. Yeah, that um, was the crazy part for me was obviously because in the ABA book, we were talking about when he got drafted and stuff. But like guys like that who just they're so naturally talented being at the end, like at the edges of basketball is always crazy to me. Well, and it's such an interesting foil for like the Kermit Washington story where Kermit wasn't really naturally talented, but he just like worked his ass off and like pushed through injuries and hardships and, you know, self-doubt to like just be an okay player. And then somebody like Marvin Barnes, who just has this like ridiculous amount of talent that he doesn't really have to work for at all can still just walk out on like it says let's see um and and like i mean they talk about him as if he's like completely profligate too like he just spent all his money probably made like four million dollars you know but he spends it all on cars and coats and because news has to look a certain way to his people and um it talks about how let's see Meanwhile, the ball boy isn't taking care of the other players like he's supposed to because he's out behind the arena shining up Marvin's. Oops, I lost my place. But he's the, the ball boy's out shining up Marvin's car. Um, and Marvin's in the biggest pimp's hat you ever saw, a mink coat that must have cost $10,000. And underneath that, his basketball uniform. Marvin, he's eating Big Macs and stuffing fries down his throat. Have no fear, he says. News is here. That night, he goes out and scores maybe 49 points. He gets maybe 25 rebounds. He was so good. His body was so strong. He thought it would last forever. That he could do anything he wanted with his body. Keep whatever hours he wanted. Put anything inside him he wanted. And there would be no price. Too damn much natural talent. Maybe it all I feel like... Oh, go ahead. Maybe it all came so easily to him, he never took it seriously. I feel like in the modern NBA, um, at least in regards to, like, eating food and conditioning, that that would be so hard to find someone who is just so gifted and just ate like shit. I'm sure all these guys, like, like, the way people treat their body, the way that's viewed is so much different in the modern NBA than we've read throughout all these historical books. And... I mean, that's especially, like, apparent in some of the the, the chapters about um, health, you know, with yeah. Walton especially. But but there's no there's no way that – I mean, Keegan had to buy Chick-fil-A every time. But other than, like, you know, <laughs> once in a while, other than, you know, the, the rookie duties, I'm sure these guys have, like, cooks and stuff, and they eat great, and they care about conditioning and, and all the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I wonder to a certain extent, like, I think also guys are getting, I mean, getting paid a lot more. Like, I I mean, this level of contracts going up and up and up and up has just continued, right? And for that reason, I would think it's worth, you know, taking that much better care of your body. But I'm sure there's guys who fall out of that. I mean, um, or like Joakim Noah, right? He's the guy that like I can think of right now that there's like stories about him like partying his ass off and like showing up the next day, you know, and still being able to play and in some cases not being able to play, you know, um, or like Cherokee Parks, like just random 
kind of dudes who just couldn't hang on or got, you know, got sucked back down to like the drug taking. I mean, I'm surprised he talks in here about that there was guys, a lot of guys smoking weed. I'm sure that totally still happens. But he said like a lot of guys were doing coke. And I think he implies that Marvin Barnes was was pretty strung out, you know, at times. Um, but he doesn't say specifically like on what. But I think we can infer that there was sort of a deeper, darker thing happening. Um, and maybe, maybe not, but uh, it, 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 he sure makes it sound like he didn't sleep regularly, didn't eat. <laughs> just, just crazy. Both sides of the coin are pretty, pretty intriguing, I think. Um, so, okay, so he talks about that. He mentions Marvin Barnes and how much talent he had. And then he goes into the whole Kermit story. And the whole Kermit story was just, like, so sweet and so endearing. And, um, you know, he had no memory as a little boy of anyone hugging him. Like, he just never had any person in his entire life who loved on him. And it's like he found his way to basketball sort of randomly. And had to work so damn hard. And then I just thought his story was like, it made me sad. It made me love him. It was so interesting to read it, like, from the, you know, the um, perspective of, like, knowing that he was the guy that punched Tom, Rudy Tomjanovich. Like, but he's just a good guy who worked his butt off, who, like, played through injury, who... And who was never great, you know what I mean? But he, he had to do all those things just to stick. Like, and uh, so I found, I found his story really, really compelling. Um, and then the fact that, like, they talk about how he comes into the NBA, they put him at the wrong position, you can't really figure shit out. And then he finally goes and asks for help, and there's, like, no set like development program for these guys who are coming in he just goes and asks the coach to help him out and the coach is like well hell yeah like you know this guy's asking for help but it's amazing how far that has come like the the g league stuff and i think there's a way more emphasis on like player development coaches and obviously way more coaches and um Hopefully there's, you know, and I know like the, the union actually has like classes for some of the rookies and stuff on like how to manage your money. And, but it sounds like at this time there was just absolutely no, it was like sink or swim, um, you know, or if you're somebody like Kermit, like ask for help from somebody who might help you. And it doesn't sound like a lot of people had the time to help you because they were already so wrapped up in their own success or failure, you know? Uh, so the Kermit story, like I said, love that one. I don't think I did a great job of catching all the other ones, but they sort of get, he gives these overviews of like the Philadelphia team when they go there, the New York team when they go there, or the Boston team when they go there. And I thought those vignettes of like the history of the team, 
and where the team was now and then the sort of like how the team was transitioning into their new phase was really good um and then he talks a lot about like oh go ahead I was I'm just going to say that that talking about the other teams just adds so much to like making this book stand throughout history. It, it captures the moment in history, like going through all these, the, all the important teams and all the, I think this book really does a great job in capturing what it was like in the NBA during that time period. That's pretty special. Yeah. And he just traverses through like so many iconic, and non-iconic players too. Like, I mean, from Earl Monroe to Willis Reed to Julius Irving. And then like, but the guys that he really, in my mind, like focuses on and presents this great picture of are like Tom Owens or, you know, somebody who is not these icons and, um, and makes them heroes, I guess. And, and, and not, you know, I appreciated that for sure. I think he also did like a great job. He, so this he he talk, talks a lot about Lionel Hollins and um, oh gosh uh, Maurice Lucas is that his first name? Um, waiting yeah. to get traded and how like it's just puts the whole team on edge. Like how they're just kind of all waiting for for the hammer to drop and like basically everybody's kind of uncomfortable and awkward and like wondering what's going to happen with them and what does this mean for the team and um he he talks about how you know like uh Lionel and Lucas were both sort of unhappy and adrift in the team but then there was guys like Abdul Jelani who were like well like this guy gave me my chance and I'm playing in the NBA and I'm making great money. And like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like as, you know, disgruntled as these guys do. So I thought that was also a really great um, representation of like how uncertain life in the NBA is, you know, and he also um talks about it like in terms of like Kermit when he first got to Portland the guys how they have to move around and like how they're encouraged not to buy houses in certain markets and like I think I like again I was watching exit interviews today but Trey Lyles is just really good like where somebody asks him like you've been on you know whatever like eight teams in the last five years or something like that and um and he says, yeah, I feel like I'm finally home. I want to come back here. Like, um, I feel like I finally found my groove and I feel like these guys accepted me. And like, that must be such a great feeling, you know, when you feel like you've just been like never finding it and just going from team to team to team and people aren't really maximizing you or appreciating you and you're just always unsettled, you know? So I think that's a big part of the NBA that like we – as fans were like, Oh, just do better. Oh, just be great. Oh, like just go play 30 more minutes. Like without really like, you know, completely understanding these people as humans with emotions. And, um, anyways, I, I thought all of this like went really far towards humanizing all the players in a really interesting way. 
Um, and then he goes into, let's see. Oh, it, this was a good, he, he was with his team and he was not with it. He wanted to be traded and they had said that would they would trade him, but nothing happened. They told him that they could not get what they wanted and that they were not going to give him away. I feel like so many players get stuck in that, this like weird trade limbo of like where he's not the future and he's not really the now, but they can't get what they want for him. You know, so you feel John Collins. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) That poor guy. Right. I mean, even like in some ways I was like, man, I kind of feel this like bad for like Marvin Bagley or Buddy Heald or like, that they're just kind of waiting in a limbo. Like, you know, the team tried to move off you and you're still supposed to put your best foot forward. Um, and, you know, but you know, you're not part of the future either. So, I mean, it's just a hard, hard place to be in. Um, and, and let me see here. So his business was then looking at poverty stricken 19 and 20 year old boys and trying to decide what they would be like in ability and character as 26-year-old millionaires. And I just thought that was really a poignant description as well. It's like you're trying to estimate potential based on this like set of factors that is so mind-boggling. You know, the changes that these kids would have to go through from like step A to step Z is, is insane. Uh, let's see. It talks about Earl Monroe. And then never for a moment. So it it talks a lot about Maurice Lucas and how he resented, like, how he reminded, you know, the team that the team started winning when he got there, not when Bill Walton got there. That the team started being good when he got there, not when Bill, Bill Walton got there. And that he was sort of, I mean, it has this whole section too that we'll get to in a minute where they just take so long to like, you know, um, to like write any contracts or make any offers, which like complicates the matters of guys feeling wanted too. Uh, So, but then, but never for a moment did Maurice Lucas forget that Bill Walton was white. And when they played together, he made six times as much as Lucas did. So I, I thought that was also poignant. Like, I, I don't, you know, we talk so much about Bill Walton in this. And, um, like, I don't think Bill Walton came off very heroic at all. Right? Did you? Like, he seems sort of like a villain in some ways. Mm-hmm. Not because he's totally a dick, although he does seem like he's a dick when he's hurt. I don't think anyone was really... Um... It was too. It was a gray book, gray, gray characterizations, you know, gray painting, painting in shades of gray. So I'm not sure Walton was. That's true. That's there was true. a lot of compassion for him. I felt like from the writer, from the, from Albert Sam, and a lot of, but a lot of like where he was also critical of him as well. But um, I don't know if anyone was really. I'm trying to think of who the villain would be or any Bill Lunds. Weinberg was the villain. <laughs> yeah, Weinberg yeah, was no. Weinberg was a was a was a a deal maker. He wanted to he wanted to he wanted to win the deal. <laughs> every deal mm-hmm. he made, he wanted to win. Yeah, every every deal. I, I, like I can't he, imagine anyone 
getting off worse in this book because how many of the the problems of the team was caused by him yeah like, like it, it's so poignant in the story is trying to tell that he has to come off as a a villain in this story i think that i think that they showed bill walton in so much depth that that he he felt really human not 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 a character not good or bad he was yeah, flawed but he was a flawed person but but aren't we all right yeah no that's a great take and it's not his fault that he got paid six times as much right yeah, I mean, yeah. he did offer himself a contract like and i mean i think they talk later on too that like weinberg like was good friends with bill walton but and and um, Ramsey was like, well, why don't you try being friends with Maurice Lucas? Maurice Lucas is also a great guy, and it's kind of like, well, we know why, you know. Um, so, anyways, I mean, I he, he, there, it's part of the broader narrative here that he's talking about racism in the NBA, and this is a really easy way to show how it was explicit, right? is you know I, and, and not that like even somebody responded to this thread that I put out earlier Rob who's like a big Kings fan and uh, he was saying that he used to watch Bill Walton because his grandparents lived in, in Portland and he was saying like watching him was like he's never seen anyone else that looked like him he just looked like a man among boys you know but it's like his availability was so limited and then where they go into all the stuff about his feet and like keeping him healthy for the single year when they won the championship. It's just like so crazy, like how little he played in over his whole career, you know, and I guess you can compare it to like load management and stuff like that nowadays, or I mean, maybe Kawhi is something like that, right? Like when yeah, you get to Kawhi. see him play, he's so off the page, amazing. But you know, and I, I think overall he's had a much longer career than than Bill Walton actually. But um, but yeah, is he ever healthy? Can you depend on him or or like Zion too? I hate to say it about Zion because his career is so in its infancy, but it's almost a same situation where they can't keep his feet healthy. Um, you know? Yeah. It's, the it's the like, difference is, is because of load management, these guys are arresting it while Bill Walton drove his feet into the ground because he played through it. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think that might be a pretty big difference for at least Zion in the future, because, you know, Steph had all those ankle injuries earlier and beat had all those injuries earlier, but you know, That's they, true. yeah, yeah. Because and of the I modern NBA, they, they have a real career. Yeah. Hopefully they, there's enough advancements. I mean, they talk in here too about like the brace that they make that helps for that year. And I mean, the drugs and stuff do too, but, it sounds, I think that, that that's a lot of the stuff that they use nowadays is like, I know Steph wears ankle braces, De'Aaron wears ankle braces, um, which I noticed because I also wear an ankle brace. Um, but yeah, so I think there have been a lot of advancements, but it just, I, I was thinking about the Zion situation because he's like, he's so amazing. He's so great. He's so fun to watch. And, but th if he's out there, he's like the main hub of your team. 
And so you can't have the main hub of your team only play 50% of the season, right? I mean, anyways, it's I, it, so it's a, the, the tragedy of, of the Pelicans is that, that their second best players also injured often and they're rarely playing at the same time. So Brandon Ingram yeah. and Zion are always hurt and, and they're never hurt at the same time. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, okay, so the Weinberg stuff. Um, so it goes into all of his like real estate stuff and how he thinks he can just like apply the business stuff to the NBA. Um, but it, he does talk about so the real estate connection was not irrelevant. One of the attractions to owning a major sports team for a modern American millionaire was the ability to depreciate the athletes for tax purposes, a procedure which could make even a bad team valuable. No group of businessmen better understood depreciation than real estate operators who knew how to buy buildings and set off other income by depreciating them. And then when the depreciation ran out to sell out for a profit, practice helped explain the revolving door ownership of the Boston Celtics, one of the league's prized jewels, as owners came and owners went, always with the tip of the hat to the IRS. So I just thought that was really interesting and relevant because our last president did this too, which he's also in trouble for right now. Um, so anyways, yeah, that, that still happens. That's a skill. That's a thing. I didn't know that that was a thing in the NBA so much, but it was interesting it's probably less of a thing now, though, because of how hard it is to to buy in. Like, yeah, how much did Bomber pay? Some some billion dollars. One point five, I think. Yeah, one point five billion. Wow, it's a lot more now for any for any for any franchise that they would be. I mean, I think for any franchise it would be about that or more, right? I feel like I I feel like I saw a valuation list recently, but I don't remember. I I almost want to say that teams are up to like three and four billion dollars i know the knicks definitely right. are i know the knicks definitely are at mm. least yeah um so then it's the only player had gotten to know socially with walton why don't you get to know lucas but we know why um and then so that's sort of the intro on on or like the starting of the in-depth stuff on Weinberg. And then he switches over to the UCLA Wooden, um, Walton stuff. Um, I thought that was the best chapter of the book, oh, the, really? the UCLA that's, stuff. Oh, that's yeah. – we should talk about it because I kind of skipped over it just because – okay, my dad's a huge UCLA basketball fan, ah. but I am not, so I don't – I was kind of like, yeah, okay. I mean, I, mean, I, I hate UCLA as like, you know – LA, you know, beat LA kind of thing. But right. <laughs> but you know, UCLA is the crown jewel of uh of college basketball, at least one of them. Uh, yeah. one of the blue collar teams. And and reading about how they've built that culture was really fascinating to me. And especially how how Bill Bill Wallen was treated, you know, the the dynamic between the uh the authoritarian coach and the uh the star player. And obviously, like, Bill Walton got wet along with the coach, so a lot of things got bent. But, like, I thought that the dynamic, like, the exploration and development of Bill Walton 
to the reader was incredibly interesting in that that UCLA chapter, but I, I couldn't care less about UCLA as a team. Yeah, no, I, I get you. And I thought, especially the weed smoking, that stood out yeah. to me, the whole weed smoking thing was, and I mean, that I think it's reflective of the kind of like political, you know, um, you know, development that Bill Walton was going through at UCLA. And, and the mm-hmm. fact that they were mostly there for four years seems crazy now, right? I mean, does anybody, any basketball player stay for four years? Like, hell no. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that stuff was really interesting. Um, I know that Wooden is like oh, just absolutely celebrated, you know, coach in yeah. every way. Um, and I, I don't uh, well, the one thing that stood out to me is it says the so there's all this fuss made about um, Lou Alcindor, Wooden, you know, all the big stars at the time that created this like mythology of UCLA. And then it says, with the virtues rarely mentioned, the presence of a man named Sam Gilbert, a wealthy Los Angeles builder and fan of UCLA basketball who helped with some of the more mundane aspects of big time basketball, such as keeping egocentric superstars happy. So it just talks about like how Gilbert would like help get guys out of messes if they got into them and obviously would provide this sort of like side money for the basketball guys. And, you know, Booster is a real part of, of, of college basketball. And, And, you know, with all these new deals, that's, more open and available but but yeah boosters are a crazy part that doesn't really get talked about it's a rabbit hole to fall into learning about which is in its on its own it's a little crazy right because i mean technically they're sponsors of the team right but they're also he also told us that the tv contracts were massively outperforming the actual NBA league contracts. So where's that money going? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why do they need these boosters to be supporting the Well, the college students didn't get paid, so... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it starts getting into a lot of stuff that I don't know enough about to really talk about, I guess. And I think in Loose Balls, they, they... made me prejudiced against it, or maybe I already was a little bit, um, that it was in some ways a scam, right? That these guys weren't going to like necessarily leave college with much, except for this guarantee that they would be drafted high. And anyways, um, that's like I said, I don't know enough about it to really be a hater. So I probably shouldn't. Um, People hate on things without knowing about all the time. (laughs) Um, I thought, and then if you ran to build up your win, you ran with a basketball, the practices were considered great fun. The UCLA second team in many of those years was better than almost any starting team in America. And part of Woodson's leverage against his players was his threat. They malingered of keeping them from practice. Um. And then talks about him wanting to smoke pot and how it's kind of in some ways he's like, okay, but don't tell anyone else. And like, I kind of wonder, it just seems like Bill Walton 
must have been one charming ass motherfucker, right? Because it seems like he really had people break the rules for him a lot of the time. <laughs> and like, I mean, this is one instance where, you know, he seems to like get away with something that nobody else is sort of allowed to do. Um, even to the point where they think that um, Wooden is punishing somebody else, like for his behavior, sort of. And then it talks about how the college uh, uh, schedule, you know, doesn't reveal these kind of like stress injuries that basically won't make it through an 82-game season and playoffs on top of that, um, which I think is really important. Like, I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot is that, you know, someone having a college record is kind of a totally different thing in terms of durability. Uh, And then it just goes into to all the foot stuff, how he didn't want to take shots, how he didn't want to take pills. Um, And some of it seems, you know, he finally relents on some of the the shots and stuff like that. But then the the thing about them, like, finally taking him to get an x-ray seemed a little insane. Like, he didn't have good x-rays before that. Like, they just kept shooting him up with stuff and I mean, you know, it was a different time, like, Cold yeah. War, like, nu- nuclear fear was probably way more than it is now. I guess you don't have just, like, an x-ray machine in the team facility either. Like, you have to go to the hospital and... Wait, do they have x-ray machines in the team facilities? I don't, I don't, uh, no, I, don't I don't think, think so. <laughs> no, but they do now. Like now. Do they? I think so. I mean, they say like, oh, that got taken care of after the game. Like they asked they asked uh, I guess it wouldn't be weird to have a clinic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so they go pretty deep into the the foot stuff, keeping his foot healthy for that season. And then um, and then they the the I think I did these out of order. So there's the Boston stuff. Or first, I think they go play Philadelphia first. And he talks about... Yeah, let's still leave before Boston. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is further down in my thread. Um, I don't have much on that except for the Daryl Dawkins thing, which I thought was hilarious because he names his dunks, which is how he got the name Chocolate Thunder. Um, But... The Boston stuff was really fascinating and interesting because of all the weird contract stuff and how, what kind of like a weirdo Red Auerbach was, but like everybody loved him, but he would like discourage players from buying houses there. Like, Yeah, that stuff wouldn't fly in the modern NBA. I think the closest thing we have is Thibs. And even then, no one takes him seriously because of how out there that kind of stuff is nowadays like this like yeah. weird authoritarian team leader um and, and then the crazy thing to me was how how the, that people accepted the contract shit like like what your value is your value right now not the value you've given to the team 
And that's just how they just screw over younger players because they accept that as a part of the culture. And that's such a wild thing to accept. That that would never fly in the modern NBA. Well, and believing, I think I didn't highlight it, but I mean, I didn't pull it, but believing that like his players should be poor so they needed the playoff money really badly, that, that was like an interesting, like, so they're like the best team in the league, but getting paid shit so that they need need the playoff money to make ends meet. Like, that, that I mean, that's, that's how crazy. you build a contender, right? You have I a guess. lot of really good <laughs> underpaid players. So you have way more depth than anyone in the league. Yeah, that's like you've got to want it more. You've got to be more hungry, all that kind of thing. You know, like, yeah, I, I actually need it. Like, um, and he just that Auerbach was like the de facto leader because they had owners coming in and out. Um he believed friends suspect that if salaries were too big, the players would become soft. The playoff money would not mean as much to them, and they would therefore not enforce their disciplines among each other. With playoff money an important factor in their lives, the players would not allow any member of the team to slip out of condition or pursue personal statistics to the detriment of the group as a whole. So he thought it was a big part of like the team building I think that with sports culture, they, I think a lot of the talking about you need to have the edge, you know, the Mamba mentality, the, the beat the opponent at all costs. I think a lot of that is exaggerated. Like, because that is exactly what this is, right? The, the edge to uh, that, the, that we can make our players better because of some small mental thing. um, That's like well, right now, NFL is going through this, right? With their, their guaranteed contracts. And you hear all the time about, like, you know, how running backs need the, or, you know, stuff like that. And, and it's all absurd to me. I don't, I, I don't really think guaranteed money will make you play any worse. Everyone wants to be a star, right? Everyone wants to, like, do the best they can. Just because you have money doesn't mean you'll give up on it. Right. Well, I guess, like, I mean, and also as outdated as this sounds and weird as it sounds, in some ways, I see the value in having more parity in salaries than there is now. Like, if you consider that the average, and I'm going to make these numbers up, but they're somewhere around, right, is the average NBA salary is like $12 million a year, right? That's highest and lowest, you know, in the middle of it all. But the the highest level guys who you could call superstars get paid forty five million plus a year, right? And some guys like Chemezi Metu gets paid one point nine million dollars a year. So, I mean, you can only it, have five players on the floor, right? Like, and, and if yeah. one player provides the value of three average players, then they deserve to be paid exponentially more. Right. Um, the old eighty twenty rule that they, one of the books we read talked about that, like four one player is worth four others. So yeah, that's a that's a great um, reference right there, for sure. I just I guess like for me like having pulled all the salaries this year, I was kind of like, dude, like okay, so these teams that are super teams, the you know Kawhi, Paul George team, for instance. Like, they're mm. spending so goddamn much money on payroll, but they basically have those two gigantic salaries 
And then they have two pretty high salaries, which I can't remember what they are right now. I can pull them, but um, the, the the weird thing about else is shit, like, and it's like, is everyone else shit? I guess is is my biggest question. I mean, if if you look at the the Warriors, they're making they're paying about the much same, right? Like they their their salary is like two hundred, like million or something like that. Well, the salary cap is one thirty, right? But um. You kind of have to pay to play because you like it's basically unless you're a tanking team, it's pretty hard to make a competitive team under the salary cap, right? Like we're looking at the the upcoming um, free agency, and it's like we have if, if we don't re-sign Barnes, we have twenty million dollars, but but we can't add anyone, you know, that would significantly improve the team without that. And all these teams do these signing trades. So with signing trades in mind, it kind of helps to have some bad contracts on the team to make trades work. That's true. Yeah. No, that's so, a good point. I just, I just like looking at all the teams that I have pulled. There's just the super teams are extremely top heavy. Like Phoenix is the perfect. Phoenix is Booker. Um, it's Booker, CP3, and Durant, and then you have Aiton like slightly below, and then everyone else is like minimum contracts, right? So do they have the depth? Um, and we don't know that yet. I mean, we won't know until the end of the season, right? I mean, Golden State is similar, is that they have these really huge contracts. And even though they're... It's, it's they, the luxury tax that, that makes it hard to add talent afterwards. Because I'm sure if you rolled back all these super teams a few years back, they probably had depth. Um, but, but because they've been re-signing guys and, you know, years go by, they lose all the guys that they, you know, that they, 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 they lose all their debts because they can't afford yeah. to because of the, the, the tax. Yeah. And I guess, I think in some cases it's going to work, right? Did it work for the Clippers? No. Um, you know, will it work for, I mean, the Lakers were an egregious example, but they got rid of Russ and like made that into a bunch of different smaller contracts. Um, I'm trying to think. And anyways, uh, it, it's something uh, that the, the, the Bucks in. are The Bucks are the, the, the one to keep an eye on because the Bucks they are can't. Another one. Yes, yeah, so there's only nine teams that were in the luxury tax this year, right? And two mm-hmm. of them are already out, I think. The Bucks and, and the Clippers. And the Bucks are in a jam as far as re-signing. And I don't know what the Clippers are talking about, that they're going to, like, bring back Russ and do all this other stuff. Like, but with the new CBA, I don't know that you can even do any of that stuff. Like, I, I think, I think, assuming you don't have a stingy owner, um, I think most teams will be able to, willing to go in the, the super tax, assuming they have a real shot at a championship. But yeah. then the second they don't, they'll probably start selling. Yeah, yeah. And the Clippers are in a jam anyways because they have a new arena and et cetera. They need to – anywho, that was a complete sidetrack. Um, and then he talks about dra- – so he talks about the, the Celtics, like, heyday. Then they kind of have this, like, falling apart period where everything's sort of a mess and the players aren't Celtics players anymore and all this kind of stuff. And then they talk about drafting Larry Bird – and that's when all the salary stuff and everything goes out the window. I thought it was fascinating that Larry Bird was the sixth draft pick. Um, 
And it just talks about how every single player on the Celtics just was like loved playing with him so much because they made the game so much easier. They made every single one of them so much better. Um, and it talks a little bit about Bill Russell and Bill Russell, even though he felt like Boston was racist, still had this like really intimate tie with Red Auerbach that continued, you know, on after his career was entirely over. And then it goes into the players union stuff, the history stuff. Um, and, uh, Bird, just real brief. Bird was a draft yeah. stash. He was a he was like one of those players in NBA two K that has one year or two years before he's gonna come to the league. Because he was gonna he was oh, gonna play right. a senior year. That's why he, yeah. that's why he fell to six, really. Um is what the oh. he probably would have gone earlier if he'd uh, if he'd been willing to play drop out of college or could drop out of college or whatever. You know, I totally read that and that's I'm so glad you mentioned that because I completely forgot about that and that makes it make so much more sense that he went fifth. Because he did stay one more year at college, right? Right. That's why Arbrock didn't care. Arbrock spent the pick yeah. and wasn't going to get him that next year. Just wanted, wanted to lock him up. So I yeah. feel like in the modern NBA, a lot of teams would be okay with that. Like t- allowing a year away because, I mean, that's another tanking year while you get two talents. Right. So it, it's, it's a free, good like, it's just a free, great pick. Yeah. Uh, I see. Oh, yeah. So, in 1979, the Boston Celtics, once the tightest of teams, began the season with a payroll of $2,651,071, which we just said, like, the cap this year is, like, $130 million, I think. So, it's it's uh, increased slightly since then. Um the highest in the league, the the world had indeed changed because Bird signed for $650,000. And then, okay, so the players union history stuff, again, I found this incredibly interesting. I looked up a little like more concise, like timeline of when all this stuff happened and it's at the bottom of the thread if anybody has an interest in it, interest in it. But, um, I I thought this stuff with the the Larry Fleischman stuff was really interesting and then just like it's probably still one of the best unions in the country. Oh, oh Fleischer, sorry. Um he recognized the legal structure of basketball, a rare surviving monopoly, a structure in fact worthy of an antebellum plantation. So they talk when he when he's writing about this, he uses a lot of interesting language that references slavery. Um, he talks about the players finally being free when they're not required to, um, you know, when they, they free up some of the um, free agent restrictions and stuff like that. They don't have to stay with the same team forever and ever. And, um, and forming the players union and the, the players uh, wanting pensions would seem to be like the main motivating factor <clears throat> in forming it. But then the players union got really strong. Um, 
knowing they had leverage, the players decided to strike. The issue was a pension plan, the most minimal kind of pension plan imaginable. The owners refused to grant it. The leaders of the players were Heinsohn, Russell, and Wilkins. The strike was a shaky business. A few minutes before the game time, it was still uncertain whether they would go through with it. But then the Lakers guys, Jerry West, etc., like threatened to walk off the court and it and the deal gets struck. Um, now freedom for the players seemed right around the corner. At the same time, the owners wanted desperately to merge with the vulnerable and shaky ABA and to secure Julia Serving and David Thompson to help their television draw. But the union opposed the merger. What held the two sides apart was the issue of compensation. So it talks about how um, they uh, compensation ended in 1980. So they, they, it talks about how they smoothed that out. And then it talks somewhat about, um, which again, I didn't pull enough of to, to reference specifically, but talks about how like the first CBA was developed and stuff like that. So that's pretty amazing. I don't know what impact it's had on labor outside of the NBA or if it's affected like, you know, other sports, but I have heard in passing that the, NBA players union is like the strongest, you know, union that there is in sports. So what I would imagine it influences other, other sports. Um, and I mean, I, I, I've also heard stories specifically about a Portland player actually, who, um, you know, didn't, who retired without a pension plan and like had a stroke and basically all of his teammates basically passed the hat to try and like cover his medical care for the rest of his life. And that was how they did it back then, you know, cause they had no, like if you spent all your money or you weren't smart about your money or you didn't make a lot of money, which some of these guys were in the league for like two or three years and made maybe, you know, whatever, like, two hundred thousand dollars um unless you were like investing it and stuff you didn't that wasn't enough for a lifetime you know so anything you guys have anything else on that part of it like the union or the cba stuff i mean just just general stuff about i thought it was pretty crazy how imbalanced it started and then the fight so you can get basic rights and then now how how basically the NBA PA almost dictates though they didn't the, the new CBA is pretty crazy uh um but yeah it's it's that the the whole Fleischer stuff was really interesting to read that that's basically all I have to say about it yeah yeah for sure like I um you know I think you, you re, uh, I think we've read a lot like the ABA stuff and and this too like where lawyers are really depicted as sort of like it, they're the villains you know they're the like the shady middlemen and <clears throat> here's one that was really fighting for the players which I think is really cool <laughs> sorry I'm like a sore throat um so, and then it talks about how Weinberg came up with the contract that, like, basically circumvented where they would sign guys for, um, like, two years guaranteed and then add another two years onto it that were not guaranteed. 
so they could renegotiate it. And then Fleischer was like, oh, that's so smart. And he like ter- totally like, you know, circumvented our system. And uh, so that was interesting. Daryl Dawkins, like I said, the chocolate thunder flying, robinizing, crying, teeth shaking, glass breaking, rump roasting, bun toasting, wham ban, glass breaker, am jam. That cracked me up because I always wondered why he was called Chocolate Thunder. I remember watching Daryl Dawkins and he was fun for a really long time. And that was from, actually, I think that part was from the Philadelphia um, description and where they went through like where Philadelphia was and talked a lot about Julia serving again. And I didn't totally pull that because I, I don't know. I didn't have any more thoughts on it, I guess. Um, and then Fleischer, the, the, the Weinberg stuff is like what Fleischer thinks is like Weinberg. He thought must be a very smart businessman, maybe smarter than anyone else in the league. How wise he was, was another question. He just was not good at like the people part, you, you know, he wanted to get like the best deal and like squeeze every penny and like push every deadline out and like, but the people part, he was not great at. And it talks about Tom Owens' dad dying and him going to like take care of his dad's receipts and stuff and kind of figuring out that his dad, like, um, the largest amount of money his father had ever made, he learned to his shock, was $8,200 in a year. He had no idea it was that little. It was like discovering upon your father's death a kind of secret poverty. So, and then that makes him like, uh, you know, way more uh, firm in wanting like a really fantastic contract to basically generate more wealth. Because like, I think he realized that he came from total poverty. His dad worked his ass off and had nothing. And uh, so he became even more intransigent about his contract. It and was... Then, uh, go ahead. No, I didn't. I was just going to move on. Oh, I was just going to say it's probably the only part of the book that really brings the money stuff into context for us. Because, like, the the it's so crazy how, I mean, we're talking about all this contract stuff, but then, like, these guys, yeah, they only have careers for... 10 years if lucky but but the the money they're making like outstrips almost any other career in yeah. in orders of magnitude like like it, it is so crazy how 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 much hard work some people put in and they they don't get anything out of it and it's, it's, it's how mean, much society is now we call it generational wealth right like and i know that like at the last draft there was like a couple of the commentators who were like he just he just changed his entire family's, you know, picture for the rest of, for like five generations by like getting into the NBA. Like this is life altering wealth, the kind of wealth that, you know, ancestral white people only have had in this country for many, many years. And, um, but it's still not owner wealth. I mean, that's what's so funny about it is there's like levels of wealth even now, right? Um, yeah, but but it, it's like but but 
when you have like at least enough money, it ch- like it changes the outcome of your life because stuff like school, like you know, getting a good education, going living in a nice community, all of that has so much impact on on how you like like grow up in the future. If you're if you're wealthy, if you can go to the best schools and you all that stuff, you'll have connections and you'll be able to get a good job and this stuff snowballs once you're, yeah. like, in, it's very hard to fall back. So, so this, this money, these, th- when they say generational wealth, it really is. I, I think that it was so interesting putting Tom Owen's story too, where it's like, okay, his dad worked as, you know, was like this blue collar dude worked really mm-hmm. hard, like, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go to the Billy Ray story. And Billy Ray comes from even fucking less. He comes the, from the Billy nothing. Ray, the Billy Ray <laughs> stuff. I, I have notes on this because it kind of that, that it broke me a little bit. It broke me a little bit. I yeah, it, it same. <laughs> um, I I had to look up, and I, so I put Billy Ray like he didn't really go I was like well how long did Billy Ray even last in the NBA yeah he, he lasted in the NBA for four years he basically like drank his himself out of the league he ended up being like a legendary player overseas um but he 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 did he wasn't without his problems um and I think he says in here at some point oh yeah so Billy Jackson believed didn't drink all that much it was just that he wanted people to think that he had been drinking and that he was a big man. In his senior year, Billy stayed away from booze and averaged 45 points and 21 rebounds. In the end, in his senior year, an astonishing number of once all white colleges, including Old Miss, applied for his services. So it's sort of a harbinger that he puts here because Billy Ray, like I said, he was in the league for four years, sort of drank himself out of the league. Um and had this like legendary career overseas. But when he came back, he ended up in prison for many years, kind of like spent all his money, you know, um, had other addiction issues. So sadly, sad to report, but still what a fantastic story. Um, so yeah, so the Buckwalter stuff does, um, tells Buckwalter's backstory. And again, I, he talks about Buck Walter's story in an interesting kind of way where Buck Walter is sort of trying to be this like presence of good. Like he grew up as a Mormon, but Mormons were racist. So he like was inspired to like help black kids get places, do better things. But there's still this language, the recruiting of kids the buying and selling, really. He felt more relaxed about it now that he was in the pros. So there's some element of of dirtiness even to what he's doing. And I think they present it in a lot of ways, like these recruiters for college and for, you know, the pros are kind of hucksters in a lot of ways and sort of snake oil salesmen to a certain extent. But, I mean, Buckwalter was like a scout and looking for these guys and trying to make their lives better um and then yeah that it talks about so all billy ray's stuff as far as him coming up in mississippi 
um, picking cotton, you know, moving lumber. Yeah, like, like I can't believe sharecropping, like an NBA player sharecropping. What a what a world we live in. It, it, it's the bait story is it's crushing and it is just such an example of the historical like systemic issues of America. It's, and I think at one point he says like, this is a story that people were familiar with like a generation mm-hmm. ago though, you know? Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a country lost in time. Like, and yeah, there's still people who are like literally living on a master's land. Like fucking crazy. I think, and then what, he says, what, "Go ahead." Oh, I, we'll we'll go ahead, and then I'll talk about the. What um, one, one thing? What one line that got to me was when they said that Bates was only in school just for basketball. Yeah, like, that that killed me. Like it makes sense given everything, but he couldn't read in school. That's that's so crazy. Yeah, like, but but it's. It's just that the when you have when you're in that much poverty and schools just aren't funded and there's no real way to get to college and or a real job, the odds are so stacked against you that that there's only one hope and that hope is you know it, it's a hail mary. There's it's not a real you know career path, and, yeah. and that's what kills me the most about Bates' story is he's the one who made it. But think yeah. of all the hundreds of people who were in a similar situation that couldn't have made it. It's the way <sighs> that he tells these stories is, I mean, he, he tells a little story about artist Gilmore. Like what, once when he was in Utah, he tried to recruit a shy, tall man from Dalton, Georgia named artist Gilmore. I need Gilmore's had written him a pair of 15 and a half shoes. Like he didn't even have shoes. Like, and or the, also the way that he tells Kermit's story, like where Kermit, the only thing that Kermit knew that surrounded him in this like oppressive, pervasive way was failure. That was the only fucking option, you know, but somehow he chose a different path. And then in this, I mean, it's the same thing here is it's like this random series of events that even makes it possible for him to access basketball, a real basketball gym, right? Um, like it says, so let's see. Buck Walter almost cried when he read the letter. Like um, it talks about how they um, integrated the schools in Mississippi in Itala County where Billy Ray was, you know, lived. And so For a week, the school shut down. When it reopened, what had been a white high school had turned into a predominantly black school. Whites departed for their own new instant private schools. Like instant private schools. Just that right there is disgusting. Uh, But they left behind for the young blacks of Mississippi something previously unattainable, first-rate facilities, gyms built by white school boards for white children, athletic budget set by white boards for white players and a tradition of white newspapers covering local high school sports events. Like I thought that was just, it's like a land lost in time. And then the change, you know, necessitates these people for the briefest of moments, getting the same treatment. And when they do somebody 
can actually succeed out of that, you know, just sad, <laughs> like horrible, um, but also like hopeful, like this whole time I'm like rooting so hard for Billy to succeed and be amazing and have a great life, you know. Um, so yes, okay, so he gets to the league, uh, or he plays for the main Lumberjacks, the Lumberjacks, such an awesome name, and uh, I love this, what kind of plays do you run? Inman had asked Bates and Equid before the game, oh, we don't run plays, Bates had answered, we just take the ball down and shake and bake a little, well, said Inman, what do you talk about before the game, where we're going after the game, said Equid, <laughs> This is so great. Uh, okay, and do you ha do you want do you have notes on Billy that you want to read or? No, I, I've I've already said most of my piece about it. Um, but yeah, it's just it just was such a sweet story, and then that they he learns how to read, you know, and he's so polite. It's, it was and just nice. so much more of a deep cut. Than, than I expected in, in a basketball book about, oh, you know, God. yeah about sharecropping and then our feeling schools, not even being able to read, needing laws to enforce integration and the opposition about it and, and all of that. And he still made it into the NBA and then thrived in at least a few seasons. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, okay. So I think I, we're nearing the end here. So then, I just have a couple of random things in here, like the weird story that he told about uh, about um, Ramsey, like sweating profusely. I thought it was really weird. And like how he had tried to like put pampers under his arms. And um, <laughs> that was really interesting. And that's when Billy Bates actually gets to the league. And when he actually starts getting, uh, playing time and he's just like fantastic and he becomes like a star overnight um, with five seconds left Billy Bates hit an 18 foot jumper which tied the scores at the game into overtime and it talks about how you know how he could just rack up the points real quick uh, it talks about the end of Marvin Barnes career Marvin put a lot of crap in his body over the years he never had to work oh that was I already said that that was a different one so and then he the, this little bit this little ending piece on LaRue Martin which we talked about LaRue Martin last time who was like the rookie that never really worked out for Portland and he has this last little piece in the book about how LaRue keeps trying to kind of like hint to the coaching staff hey I think I can like do it I've been training really hard and then he gets a chance in Indiana and he just can't quite cut it and it's you know, it, it's just sort of like the reminder that not not everybody makes it. It doesn't work out for everybody, um, no matter how nice you are or how hard you work. Yeah, you know, I, I think of like Harry Giles, you know, everyone in the yes. locker room loves you <laughs> and, and we're all rooting for him. But, you know, it, it, sometimes it just doesn't work. I, I think it's crazy, though, that how desperation can can screw you out of it because because it seemed like he was probably going to get a position but then you know tore 
something and he got, yeah. got injured and you're out of it. And like you're just rooting for him so hard because he's, you know, but I mean, I think a lot of times it mentions in here too, which I, I still think is like, this, just play through it. Like, you know, and, and it's like these guys, a lot of them, they, like people are always like, oh, well, they used to just play through it. It's like, yeah, they also fucking ended their careers or hurt themselves so bad they never came back or had surgeries that were, you know, that they kept having to have surgery and were never able to play again. So, I mean, I, I think it's like, you know, people need a little bit more history on what actually happened. It's not always a matter of just playing through it or like wanting it more or whatever. Like, I mean, this poor, poor um, LaRue, like, hurt himself twice but he knew he wouldn't get another chance and so he kept just hurting himself to try and like make the team and then they had to cut him anyways you know um so anyway yeah so we're almost so and then it just it sums up um just two years er earlier seattle like portland before it had been the league champion young cohesive and strong, the envy of all other teams. Now it was coming apart. It ended the season with a record of 34 and 48. It's fall from grace, sudden and painful. I thought that was like such a great little paragraph that essentially like describes exactly what he just wrote in 400 and however many pages about how Portland fell apart, right? And it's like this decline, it's like, it's so hard to maintain, right? Um, and it's like this cycle that all teams, you know, it's an up and down cycle of all these different teams. And he does such a good job of, of sort of portraying that through like the New York narrative, the Philly narrative, the, um, the uh, you know, Boston narrative. And, like, unless you luck out on one of these really generational players, um, you're just kind of always on the downswing. And then it goes into Twardzik's, the end of Twardzik's career, which is, like, I was talking about the five knee surgeries, and he just couldn't get back. He just wasn't healthy enough. His knees wouldn't let him. Um and that was, so this is a pair, so it was, he said, and, it, you know, it also agreed to help him in a claim against the insurance company for his disability pay. So he couldn't get back on a roster, but, and he kept trying to, like, get them to pay out some of his contract and, or, like, they wanted to waive him and all this stuff. Um, oh, this is Larry Steele. I'm sorry. Twardzik was different. Larry Steele was the guy who had five surgeries. And then it was, he said, just one of the breaks of the game. Friends in business told them that this sort of thing happened all the time in the corporate world, especially when men reached higher career levels where salaries were greater. So just, you just get sort of thrown out with the trash, you know, um, when you're no longer able. And then this last one um, is where he says, my God, a year ago, we gave up Maurice Lucas and two firsts for this guy. 
And now all we're getting back is a chance to move up a few notches in the draft. So I think it's like the teams that are on the downslope, you get these like really diminishing returns, right? You have to like divest from your stars and you get like Jerry, Jerry Reynolds in his book said, never trade a star for just a bunch of guys, you know? And that's kind of what happens a lot is like, it's kind of what uh, Brooklyn did, even though Mikhail Bridges is freaking awesome, but they traded out their stars for like a bunch of guys and now they're going to have to piece off all those guys and try and like get back what they paid out for the stars originally. And, um, and it's just a game of diminishing returns, especially if you can't hit somewhere. Right. And then the story about Billy Ray learning how to read, um, in Portland, it's really sweet. Um, and, you know, Billy, the most celebrated student the school had ever had, was willing to talk publicly about his inability to read, about the social problems it caused him, and how he had managed to fool people in the past by reading a key word or two from a paper, but never an entire pa- paragraph or book. And then very, very last, this this is a book that I researched by being there. I traveled with the players and coaches. I lived with them throughout the entire season. And I talked to them almost continuously, in many cases, 30 times or more. It was, in the truest sense, a season shared. Living so completely in the world of basketball, I saw countless people who were connected to the game for brief interviews. I must thank them without mentioning their names. So he was sort of like the original inside source guy. Um, and then, like I said, I pulled Where Are They Now, Billy Ray Bates. So this is sort of his life story there, um, which sadly turns out not fantastic. Um, and then this, the APBR thing is the, is like <clears throat> a written out step-by-step of the players union in the CBA history. And then I pulled just Bill Walton's. Um, he basically was in the league from 1974 to 1988. So actually for a pretty long time, but barely played on that, on the, the most of the teams that he was on. But he did win another championship in 1986 with Boston. So, anywho, now that's it. You guys have any last thoughts? Yeah, I got some thoughts. Um, I just thought I'd save them for the end because. Um... Because they're not, uh, they may not have been, they've been a bit of damper on it, or I could put them earlier on. But um, overall, with the book, uh, I only ended up listening to the second half of the book. Um, I was gonna, I was planning to like listen and then read, catch up, and then that kind of being being able to better able to just skip around and read. But I, I kind of meant to do that too after I, even after I came to the conclusion I came to, but I just didn't do it. Um, you know, overall, it's hard to say this, but like I just wasn't really overall a fan of the book um on the positive side i would say it's good writing like as far as the prose diction syntax blah 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 that kind of stuff it's pretty good writing and the character exploration was very good of all the various people and their backgrounds and their motivations and their desires it was all very good so on the negative side for me only for me um i don't really understand and I do get it now. I didn't get the last part. It wasn't in the audiobook, as far as I remember. I don't know if Kevin heard it in the audiobook what, what Meg just read about from the book, 
where he's writing the acknowledgments or whatever. I didn't hear that in the audiobook, but um I didn't understand why he chose to cover the events he did. It was kind of an unremarkable season for the Blazers, but now I kind of get it. He just kind of traveled with the team and he just kind of covered what was there. He wasn't he well, he didn't choose that season. He traveled with the team during that season, so it wasn't like he picked it. Um Right, right. He went very yeah. far field. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. Uh, he went very far afield of the Blazers. He just kind of like talked to all teams throughout the league. I, I just kind of, it was just the focus. I get, I get it now with that, with that thing you, with that thing you posted at the end um, that I didn't hear in the audiobook. I get it now. He was just, he was just telling all the stories that he ran into throughout the season. And like, he just kind of, he was talking to people Arbach, I'm sure he talked to, and Heinsohn, and, and the Celtics, and you know Irving. He talked to tons of different people, all the guys on the Blazers, and um, he just told the stories that Ray, he ran into. It was just kind of maybe the organization was a little bit off for me, though. Like it, it was all over the place and rambling. I'm not sure if I think it's just a, a kind of story that you might not be into because yeah. it, this is the kind of story I'm really into. I love it when stories delve upon like, like even if even it wasn't in the audiobook that the, the little acknowledgement wasn't, but even then I love it when it captures a moment of time. That's, that's okay. what it, this does okay. is that yeah. this book, it, 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 yeah, it was about an irrelevant Blazers season that, that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but it captures so much about, what it meant to, you know, be in basketball at that time. The stories about it. I, I love the small details, the stories that people have forgotten about. Um, I, I mentioned it in the first time, but like John Boys is one of my favorite like media creators. He does one like some he did like history about the Seattle Seahawks or about specific pictures about players named Bob. None of these stories matter in the grand scheme of things, but they're, it's a, it's a document. It's, it tells stories about moments and times about it captures the essence. It, it tells interesting stories you wouldn't have ever heard otherwise. And that's what I love about it is that, they're mundane, but they're more relatable. They're obscure, but they're fascinating. Um, none of these stories matter in the grand scheme of things. They're not head attention grabbing. They're not important, but it's it captures the essence of the time. It gives brought like really interesting historical like outcomes. Like if if we talked about the Sacramento Kings like history, like there you. If you made like about the 2015, 2016 Kings, I'd love that. Like, like a, a meaningless season, but, but it gives such insight into what it would have liked to have been a fan at that time, you know? So I agree with both of you. And I have to say, like, I think that listening to it might have been a really different experience than reading it because it is so fucking weird structurally. It's called Breaks of the Game. He has like three chapters that are like 25 pages each. And then he has one chapter in the middle of the book that is like 300 and something pages. 
that's not split up at all. Like, it's just like all this different shit all jammed together. And then he has a final fourth chapter that's like 30 pages that is like um, the epilogue. And then he has acknowledgments. So it's called you know, Breaks of the Game, and there's no fucking breaks. <laughs> there's crazy. four chapters, and there's four quarters of a basketball game. I think that was the intention. Oh, that makes so much And then it's talking about the season, like, and then all of the season is like chapter three, you know, the, yes. the mundane. Oh I think God. that was the intention. Uh, the audiobook had chapters. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like for me, like, that was where I was like, what, wait, we're in Philadelphia? Like, what? And, like, I just, I I didn't realize that I was so dependent on, like, even, like, numbers on chapters. It, like, helps my brain figure out spacing, you know what I mean? Or that we're, like, switching subjects completely. And I like what you're saying that it's just sort of, like, all included under the heading of, the season, but he goes so far into the future and so far back with all of like the foot injury stuff and like, and it's like, oh my god, there is so much stuff in here. It, the the like, audiobooks chapters, they're there, but they don't like this book isn't broken up like that. So, yeah. so the breaks aren't natural either. <laughs> yeah, I I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I found my ABA knowledge really relevant, which I think was cool. Um, you know, I liked finding out about Billy and I really enjoyed the Kermit Washington stuff. I liked like the stories about underdogs and like unknowns and people that make up the NBA that you don't normally hear their story. You know what I mean? I really like that. But it also dragged a little bit at the I I think I enjoyed the first part of it more than I enjoyed the second part. Um, I just think yeah. maybe so editing more editing. Well, I don't know. I think he was a very well established uh, journalist at the time. Yeah, uh, like in Vietnam War is what I picked up from Bill Simmons. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I've heard his name before, mainly for this book though. I actually maybe there's a Vietnam book he wrote actually. I may have heard his name for, but I didn't read it. But uh, but maybe someone like take a strong hand and say like, okay, let's rearrange this a little bit more, and and maybe I don't know, rearrange it a little bit more because yeah, just, that's one thing. The other thing, my, one more thing, two more. I got two more things really. Um, the last one thing is that uh, I just personally prefer plot over character development. I think there's kind of a there's there's plot and there's character development and like some shows like some TV shows like Sopranos was mostly character development in my opinion. There was a plot every season, and it was kind of like, oh yeah, we gotta worry about this plot thing. We gotta we gotta resolve this plot. You know, at the end of the season, we gotta do something about this. Okay, we'll do this. Like most of it was character development of Tony and Carmela and all the people, Christopher and Adriana. These characters was the character development from seat from episode to episode. And it's a show like Lost that does both through the flashbacks to do character development to the to the island they do character development and plot, and there's a probably like I guess like a show like Twenty Four is mostly plot, um, you know, action and plot. But um, I prefer plot uh, or both. This was definitely character development focused <laughs> for sure. As as like as the, the basketball said, was, uh, and the season yeah. was almost an afterthought, right? Like they they cover yeah. the actual game so little. 
that, that you could easily forget that this is actually about a season of Portland Trailblazers basketball. Sure. And the last thing I'll share, which is, I wouldn't call it controversial because I don't think it's going to cause any controversy, but it's just maybe unpopular, is that uh, there is just, I would say, I wrote down a different word, different language, but I would say it's overboard on the race relations, in my opinion, by the author. The blacks versus the whites, the whites versus the blacks, the treatment of the blacks and the treatment of the whites. And it's a little too much, I feel like. I know it was a lot, lot further in the past, but I feel like if Saberstein was alive today and wrote a book on the NBA today, when I believe we would hopefully say that race has improved somewhat from the 80s, the, the early 80s, um, it's still a problem, but it's improved somewhat. He would still probably focus on it a hell of a lot in today's NBA. And I'm not, NBA I'm not sure if he would. If you look at the the most, like look at the stars of the NBA, it's Embiid, it's Steph Curry, yeah. it's LeBron James, he's young, it's not like a How many of these are are white guys? How many how many white stars are there in the NBA? Um, I think that was really important to capture the period of time. I mean, like, look, he, he went with the team and he talked to the players. Like, obviously, like, Maurice Lucas being one of them. And I feel like t- if you're in the point of view of players at the time, that is just a perspective you'll get, right? Like, it's, it's an important part of the story to tell about that time. Yeah, but, that's, a, that's a good point. I think, I, I, like, the, the last story he tells about Maurice Lucas talking about the CB, about how how on TV they, like, played pre, they played a pre-recorded yeah. version of the playoffs at, like, midnight or something. And mm-hmm. Maurice Lucas was, like, talking about how he thought it was because it's a black sport. And, um, I, I think he was trying to give the athletes voice, right? He talks a lot about, like, the activism. And, you know, it's funny because I got I, – I subscribed to Kareem's newsletter that he writes on Substack. Um, and he's still such a passionate activist voice. Um, you know, if somewhat outdated. Um, and I think, I think LeBron has, like, tried to be an activist. I don't know, you know, how effective it's always been. Um, or like you say, like how much of it needs to be about race. And maybe the narrative has changed like slightly to this idea of like, it's not just shut up and dribble. Like athletes do have a voice. They are millionaires. They are, you know, important people in society. And in some ways, I think that the activism in the NBA, I love it. Like, I love that they, they wear shirts with people's names on them, you know. Um, I, I love that they, like, during the bubble, like, the, the little thing that Doc said about gun violence or, like, how Pop talks about, um, you know, society and politics. Like, I love all that stuff. And I think this was the precursor to it. But I did struggle a little bit. It was a lot. It was. Yeah, it was a lot. It it was, but I also think it was important. Like I I found it valuable to understand. And like I said, with the whole Billy Ray story, of where he was literally a fucking sharecropper in the nineteen seventies. Like 
this was a different time, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying, though, where it was, like, beating us over the head with it to a certain extent. Like, it was definitely one of the main contrasts in every set of characters, right? Is what was their background, what was their ethnicity, and what was their political viewpoint, if he could get that from them, you know? And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would say, like, what I enjoyed most about the book was just, I think he's a tremendous writer. I think the way he worded a lot of, a lot of the content is really fascinating and interesting. Like I was pointing out like that he worded, you know, some of the, um, the NBA players union stuff as if it was like, you know, antebellum South as if it was like, you know, these, these players finally becoming free and stuff like that. I think that's a beautiful style is to like embed your allegory into the language um, but I do think it's mildly outdated as well. I, I agree with you there. I, I love this book. It's one of my favorite sports books I've ever read or well, listened to. Um, mainly because of the stuff I've mentioned about how I really like stories that um, capture a period of time, capture the feeling of, of being involved with the team. Like you, we can't ever relive the season, but, but if we experience stories like this, we can experience um, that. And, and I think that there was some stuff in this book. Um, I, I just adored. I, I really loved this one. Um, I think I, I have notes on this. Um, hold on, give me a second. Hey, John, do you think that that Jake Fisher structured "Built to Lose" like kind of in a similar way to this book at all? Did you have ever have that thought at all when you were listening to it? No, I didn't have that thought, but that's a good. That's a good. I think that's a good uh, comparison. Yeah, it was kind of all all over the place and uh, yeah. And team to team to team to team. And meanwhile in Sacramento, <laughs> you know, meanwhile in Boston, yeah. You know, yeah. we're here now and okay. All right. Here we're now. We're and here like now. telling these really like deep cut stories oh, about, yeah, yeah. you know, Nerland's Noel or like, you know, people that are completely ancillary at this point in the NBA. It's yeah. I yeah. think that, this is like a pillar of basketball literature, right? Like every greatest basketball books of all time list that I look up, this is on it. Uh, mm -hmm. So in that sense, like I'm super happy to have read it. Same with loose balls. Um, I, you know, I think there's so much that like you would have to talk about it for like 20 hours to like talk about all the content though. Yeah. The, the writing style was what I loved the most about it. Um, like it tell, and, and I loved all the small details. I'm a sucker for, you know, players on the fringe, like undrafted G League players or like, um, you know, yeah, the fringe guys. So hearing about so many of these fringe NBA stories was, was engaging to me. And I really loved um, just how they talk about, you know, they, they talk about 
the team without quotes. You can learn about the player without needing to hear their words. You can tell a story about them. And, and I think that's, that's, it's special. You don't see that in other sports stories. And, and I think, I think it's an incredible style of journalism. And, and I wish we could see more like this, but, but obviously, you know, it's, it's a book. This isn't going to be profitable for all these, these teams and these journalistic, they they always just want the clicks. This, this wouldn't do that. Yeah. Have you guys read the book of basketball? No, I haven't. I haven't either. I'm so prejudiced against Bill Simmons, but it almost made me tempted to read it. Yeah, good, 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 good intro for sure. Um, anything else on this book? No, not for me. Do we want to read another? I have, I tried to find more, um, like analytics or X's and O's books, which are, I think, much harder to find. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there was one that was recommended on somebody's list that is called Basketball Analytics Spatial Tracking. And it was on their list of books to read about pace and space. Um, and like understanding the pace and space, space game. Um, and it's like 180 pages or something. Yeah. Um, I guess my choice would be the spatial one. If, yeah, that's if fine. I were to that's it, but I totally don't care. Yeah. It's fine with me. So we can do that. That's yeah. Yeah. We can do that. That, that sounds okay. like a good one. Okay. Let's we'll right. just do that one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Hey, thanks, guys. I really enjoy this. Um... Hey, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to these. I hope that um, they're as fun for you to listen to as they are for me to read and think about the books. Uh, if you are enjoying them, please tell other people about them. Like, subscribe, all that stuff. And you're welcome to join the groups uh, when I have the spaces scheduled. My handle is Megaloo2U on Twitter, and you can always message me with any um, thoughts or ideas or criticisms, and have, have a great one. Thanks.